I'd actually thought about leaping up right here. I'm glad I thought twice about that. Well, as I said at the first service, uh, welcome to the Big Tent Revival. It certainly feel, feels like a revival and felt like that this morning. And Lord willing, it, oh, it will be. My papers are going here. So we're going to look this morning at Mark chapter 16, the first eight verses. If you've been with us over the last uh, many months, you'll know that we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to look at what's called the shorter ending of Mark, uh, because um, all the earliest manuscripts don't have anything that goes beyond verse 8. So we're going to look at the shorter ending of Mark. It is a strange ending indeed, but this appears to have been the original ending of Mark. Beloved, listen to God's word. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you don't mind, I am going to put my sunglasses on so that I can see you and I won't be squinting the whole time. So um, a little bit of part of my own history, um, you may be aware of this or maybe not, but uh, I was um, in school for an awful, awful long time after post-secondary. I did five years in an undergraduate interdisciplinary degree. I did another five years working essentially on a couple of masters. And then I went off another five years and I did a PhD. And I'm telling you this not to brag in any way, shape or form, but rather to tell you that what I really wish sometimes was true of me is not that I knew how to read well or write well, which I can do pretty well, but I wish that I was handy. And all of that schooling didn't teach me very well to be a homeowner and to be handy. In fact, oftentimes it's like I have two left hands, but that does not prevent me from trying to be handy around the house because it's just absolutely necessary sometimes. Sometimes it turns out okay, at other times it doesn't turn out that well at all. We were under construction at one point and we had had people go down into our basement and uh, there's a little hatch in the roof in our laundry room and if you put your head up into the hatch in the roof, you'll see that there's all the brass pipes and there's the hot water pipes and the cold water pipes. And they had turned these on and off a couple of times, and I had developed a leak. It came to my attention. There was a little spot showing up in the drywall, you know, the ceiling in the drywall. And so I thought, well, I'm pretty handy, and, or at least I'm going to try to be, so I'm going to go and try and fix the leak. I thought it was wise to take a wrench. Is that how you fix leaks? Maybe the gasket was a bit loose. I thought I'd tighten it. So I went up there and, sure enough, tried to tighten it. But when I did, I don't know if it was... Um, because I'm super strong or if it's because the pipe was 
from 1976. But what I am absolutely certain of is that when I turned it, it broke. The faucet came right off and water began gushing out of the pipe at a very forceful rate, like a Yellowstone geyser directly into my face, started wetting all of the upper ceiling in there. And I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Well, I did the sensible thing. I wiped my face with my left hand and my right shot up and I grabbed the hose and I put my thumb over top of the hole where the gusher was coming from and I squeezed and it worked. However, it didn't work for very long because the pressure was very strong and water started squirting out the sides and so I had to adjust and solve this problem. And I did so by putting my hand directly over the pipe. But again, after a while, it was starting to get pretty hard on the pressure. And here's something else. I learned that as more water was escaping, the water was getting hotter and hotter and hotter. I had the hot water pipe. I don't know how many people you have in your house. I have six in mine. Four of them are almost teenage girls. They love to have half an hour showers. And then after they've had their shower, I sometimes like to get in and have a shower. I don't tend to love cold showers. So what I do is what they say you shouldn't do, which is go to your hot water tank and I turn it to the place where it says caution, scalding hot, you will burn yourself if you put it to this level. And so what I discovered is that indeed, unfiltered, our hot water tank gets incredibly hot and was now presently burning my palm. And so I began a little dance of going to my thumb, going to my palm, water was squirting over, I'm getting wet, and I thought, what am I going to do now? Well, being handy and sensible, I thought the only thing I could do now is just to scream for help. And so that's exactly what I did. Help, I said, help. But I said it much, much louder. And sure enough, it was a blood-curdling scream. My wife comes downstairs with a daughter or two, I can't exactly remember. They said, what? What on earth is going on? What's the matter? And I said, I've got a pipe that's bursting water everywhere. Please turn off the main. Go turn off the main. Hurry, hurry. And I don't remember exactly how things went down after this. All I remember is that we couldn't find the main or they couldn't get it. They couldn't figure out how to turn it off or I couldn't direct them to get the main off. And so I had to end up jumping down, coming out of the ceiling, as it were, letting water squirt all into the top of my ceiling panel. And we eventually had, and going off and turning the main myself, and then just having the big cleanup afterwards, we had to take the entire ceiling out. It was all water damaged. You know what the moral of the story is? The moral of the story is this. I went down on that morning with a little problem, and I ended up with a much, much bigger problem. I went down to fix a leaky pipe and I ended up with a gushing pipe and a ruined roof. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome go down to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with oil. They go down with a little problem. How are we going to roll away the stone? And they end up with a much, much bigger problem. They end up with the problem of Easter. The proclamation of an empty tomb of Jesus risen from the dead, going ahead of them into Galilee, where they will see him and where they are to witness to the resurrection 
the three disciples of Jesus, these three women, go down with a little problem. And they end up with a much, much bigger problem. And beloved, I believe that God wants to do the same thing to us this morning. I believe that he wants us to come in here this morning, or I should say out here this morning, with our little problems. And be assured that whatever problem you come here with this morning, to the living Lord Jesus, the King of this universe, your problem is little. Perspective changes things. He wants us to come in here with our little problems this morning, whatever those problems might be, so that he can give us a much, much bigger problem. The problem of Easter. The problem of Jesus. Empty tomb. Jesus, named by God, the true king of this world, the risen one. Before we talk about how Easter might be a problem for us or a bigger problem than the problems we come with this morning, let me just underscore here and try to convince you that for those three disciples of Jesus on that morning, the two Marys and Salome, Easter really was a problem. A big problem, bigger than the problem of rolling a stone away, I'll tell you that. In the first instance, it was a problem because the announcement that Jesus had risen from the dead and the reality that he was bodily raised was, in the first instance, just incredibly disorienting. It would have been unbelievably disorienting for them. Mark already signals this to us throughout his gospel. Do you know if you go back, and most of you hopefully have read through the Gospel of Mark because that's been our Lenten challenge, so um, if you've read through the Gospel of Mark, you'll know this. There is an unknowing on the part of the disciples. The disciples do not understand. They do not understand when Jesus speaks in parables. They don't understand even when Jesus acts to feed the 5,000. Jesus says to them continually, do you not understand? Do you not yet understand? And then when it comes to the transfiguration of Jesus, and he tells the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer and die, and on the third day be raised again, the text tells us that the disciples go back to one another and they say, what did he mean by rise again? They think that Jesus is speaking metaphorically. They do not have in their imagination at this time the idea that Jesus is going to literally bodily rise up from the grave. And so when these three women come down to the tomb on that Easter morning and they're told that he is literally, bodily, materially, corporeally been raised up from the grave, it may have been wonderful. <laughs> but the first thing is, it would have been disorienting. It would have been a problem of meaning for them. A big problem of meaning. Bigger problem than how to roll away the stone. It was disorienting, though, for another reason. First century Jews, to the degree that they had any expectation in the second temple period that there would be any sort of resurrection, this is what they expected. When God would move to make all things new, when he would restore the kingdom to Israel, when he would defeat evil and his enemies on every side and bring in a new heavens and new earth at that time, at the end, at the consummation of all things, when the world to come was coming in its fullness. Yes, you get the picture. At that point, as Daniel chapter 12 says, the dead will rise to receive everlasting life. The expectation was not of one man rising up from the dead, but it was of a general resurrection. And so again, incredibly disorienting, because what did this mean? It looked like in Jesus, the end had come. The new creation had broken into the world, but yet this did not fit expectations. 
because they knew that the end would come when all would rise up from their graves. So again, it was disorienting. It may have been wonderful, but first of all, it would have been disorienting. They were given the problem of meaning, and it was a big problem. It took the early church years, or I should say the early earliest apostles of Jesus, probably till the time of the apostle Paul, actually, to figure out what actually the resurrection of Jesus truly meant. It wasn't only a problem, though, this announcement of the resurrection of Jesus, because it was disorienting, but it was a problem because, as Mark underlines in our text three, four times, because it was frightening. They were strapped with fear, and it really and truly was frightening. It may be frightening for us today to hear about the resurrection of Jesus, but for those three disciples of Jesus on that morning, it was frightening for a different set of reasons, perhaps, or maybe ones that we share. In the first instance, you know, Jesus did wonderful things. He healed the lame, healed the blind. He exercised demons. But this, this was of an order altogether different. After being tortured on a Roman cross, killed, as it were, 10 times over to rise up after three days of being dead, to come out of the grave, well, (laughs) what kind of world do we live in, after all, where these sorts of things can actually happen? It may be wonderful, but first of all, it's not a little frightening. And frightening, too, because they were learning just to what degree Jesus was actually a prophet. Jesus had prophesied that Peter would deny him. That came true. Jesus prophesied that he would rise up from the grave, and though they didn't initially understand it, that too came true. And we can well imagine that immediately, viscerally, these three disciples of Jesus, these women would have thought, my goodness gracious, what Jesus says will happen will happen, and nothing will stop it from happening because here is the true prophet. And so what else did Jesus say? What else did he say? Well, he said he will come again. He said he will defeat his enemies on all sides. He said, I am coming soon. And that may be wonderful. (laughs) But first of all, it's not a little frightening. But I think the most frightening thing for them on that morning was actually the prospect of Rome. Hearing the news that Jesus had risen up out of the grave. Because you know what the cross was? The cross was a display of Rome's indomitable power. They broke Jesus because they're powerful. (laughs) But then the resurrection of Jesus is God's demonstration that he has broken the power of Rome. The weapon that they use to instill fear in the hearts of people so that they can control him, crucifixion, that weapon itself was broken at the resurrection of Jesus. And if there's one thing tyrants don't like, friends, they do not like to hear that their power has been broken which is precisely what happened on Easter morning. And so to be the one to be called by Jesus to go and tell Rome that your power is broken and to start to make this announcement that the one that you killed and thought you were so strong in putting to death, that he is now alive and therefore the game is up for you. Ooh, that may be wonderful, but there's a refrain here. Do I hear it? At first, it might not just be a little bit frightening. The ladies These disciples of Jesus, these women, the two Marys and Salome, they go down to the tomb with a little problem. And they are given a much, much bigger problem. They're given the problem of Easter. Beloved, as I suggested, I think God wants to give us the same problem this morning. 
We might say, well, how? How will Easter give us a bigger problem than the one we already have? And let me suggest a couple of ways. First, just very, very generically, generally, as perhaps you can reflect on the past year with me. I'm not sure what this last year has been like for you, but for me, it's been a challenge of controlling my thought life, if I can put it that way. My thought life has been dominated by thinking about the consequences of COVID-19, what this has meant for certain people who are afraid of dying, people who are afraid of their loved ones dying. Maybe that has been you. For me, it has been wondering in some ways about how we should respond as a church. How do we remain together? How do we remain strong as a church when we can't gather, gather together? My thought life, maybe your thought life, has been dominated by concerns of COVID-19, and that would be all very understandable. It's become the big reality in your life. For others of us, we were glued to the TV sets. It was, well, maybe it wasn't entertaining, but it certainly was occupying the whole political seen in the States over the past year. I know of many, many, many people, myself included, who were very interested in what were going on there. It became a dominant, if not the dominant aspect of my thought life for a while. My imagination was captivated by this, maybe yours too. It could have been other things. There was, boy, was it a year, the racial tensions, right? That occupied many of us worrying about how do we how do we stand in? How do we live in solidarity? How do we speak with integrity? Very difficult. Maybe it's something else for you. One of the other things that came to my attention and that could dominate my thought life is I pay very close attention to language. I care a lot about language. And I just heard a lot of language this past year that just that gave me some pause, made me think a lot, made me wonder, made me worry. Language about a great reset. And when language like that comes in the midst of a pandemic, you kind of say to yourself, what, what are we talking about here? What is this great reset? And it may be a wonderful thing, but it just, it caused me to worry at times. You know, or language about wokeness. What does that mean? Be woke. Some would say, don't follow the path of wokeness. Others would say, a lot of these things could dominate your thought life. It could become the big reality in our lives, right? The problem of Easter is this, though, and it is a bigger problem. The Great Reset has already happened in Jesus. It's a foundational, fundamental New Testament truth. The Great Reset has already occurred in Jesus. And the thing, therefore, that we are to be truly awake to as human beings is to the reality of what God is doing in this world today in our lives. And what is God doing in this world today? What is he seeking to do? What does he aspire to do? What does he long to do? Well, Mark embeds it at the beginning of his narrative when he says with repeated language that it was early on the first day of the week, at the first crack of dawn, as the sun was rising. It's not simply scenic depiction that we have here. This is symbolic depiction. The author of the Gospel of John will make it more explicit. He suggests that as Jesus rose up from the grave on the third day, that God was ushering in a new creation. Something new was being done. 
The end, as the Jews had expected, had indeed broken into the present time, and it was going to begin to make a change to this world like a patient ferment. Yes, morning had broken. But not just the morning of a new day, not just the morning of a new week, not just the morning of a new month or a new year, but the morning of a new epoch, the epoch of God doing something entirely new. The body that Jesus had, fresh, new, powerful, undefeatable, it's a foretaste and a sign of what we too will have. It is a sign of what's coming for us all new life, new creation. I still love the way that Houston Smith, the great um, scholar of world religions, put it one time in a lecture. I have mentioned this some years ago. Perhaps some of you will remember it, but it is completely worth mentioning again. Houston Smith, Houston Smith, not Smith, Smith, Houston Smith compares the world religions to the times of the day. And he says, if you think about Buddhism, right? Buddhism is is like the religion of, say, 9 or 10 a.m. When the sun, it's mid-morning, it's bright outside, it's not too hot yet, there's yellow hues, because Buddhism is the religion of enlightenment. And Islam, Islam, he says, is like the religion of 12 noon, when the sun is highest, maybe directly overhead in the sky, and it's beating down with its hot heat, and it's calling you and summoning you to the submissions of Allah. And then Judaism, he said, Judaism is the religion of 6 p.m., when the shadows are growing longer, but it's warm and it's in the cool of day because Judaism summoned you to the contemplations of Yahweh. New Ageism, New Ageism is the religion of 12 o'clock midnight when it's completely dark outside and there's no light in the sky because New Ageism is the religion that says the light comes from within. But Christianity, Smith goes on to say, says Christianity is the religion of 5 a.m. It's the religion of the crack of dawn. It's the religion of the moment where the rooster crows and a new day is dawning. And there's new possibilities in the air. And it doesn't matter what happened in the terrors of the night before, how bad, how ugly, how cold, how dark things had come, because the darkness is going to be vanquished and the cold is going to be overcome by the heat of a new day. This is the religion of our faith. And beloved, it means that whatever small problems we come with, whatever little problems we come with this morning, Christianity will give us a bigger one. Because God wants the thing, the thing that is to dominate our imaginations is the reality of Jesus awoken from the dead. Jesus doing something new in this world today and the possibility that we can get in on it by faith. Is this your greatest reality? We may say, you know what, I don't resonate with any of this political stuff that you're talking about or the year. It's been a fine year for me. And actually, I've been able to... uh, to kind of keep my head down and won't listen to the news much, so this doesn't touch me. But here's the thing, okay? Easter will present us a bigger problem than the problem we come with. Even we may not be aware of the problems we come with. Because just as the women experience Easter idiosyncratically, that is to say, according to their own expectations, given their own moment in time, so too will Easter present us a problem depending on how we come into this place this morning. For example... 
if we come in here this morning as atheists, then Easter will present us with the problem of God, his reality, grappling with a much bigger and much more mysterious world than we have given it credit for. If we come in here this morning despondent, then Easter will give us the problem of hope. If we come in here this morning feeling continually glum, then Easter will give us the problem of joy. <laughs> if we come in this morning, we come into this place um, in a spirit of fear and the fear of our own death, then Easter will present us with the problem of the call to faith and to trust in God to do what on our own is impossible for us to do. If we come in here this morning as Christians, I might say, with the fear of witnessing, as the women had the fear of witnessing, then we are given the problem again of the call to faith and courage to proclaim the truth of what happened 2,000 years ago because we believe it is a historical fact. It is not some kind of myth. It is not some kind of fantasy. It actually happened. Jesus actually came out of the grave, and therefore we are in a whole new reality, and we can participate in it. We may come here with a little problem this morning, but God wants to give us a big one, the problem of Easter. And let me just say one more thing about this. Mark actually wants us to come into the service today with a very specific problem, a very specific little problem so that God can give us a much bigger problem. You know what problem that is, according to our text? It's the problem of shame. Our Lord wants us to come in here with the problem of shame this morning. And you'll say, well, where do you see that in the text? Goodness me, this is creative, isn't it? Well, I invite you to look at the text if you have it in front of you or just remember it as it was read. Matthew mentions nothing of it. Luke mentions nothing of it. John mentions nothing of it. It's Mark and Mark alone. Go ahead today and compare the resurrection narratives in the Gospels, and you're going to see something really fascinating. You know what it is? That young man. Only here in Mark is this young man mentioned. And you know what else? There's only one other time that that Greek word that's here in Mark chapter 16, there's only one other time in the entirety of Mark's gospel that that term is used. And it's in Mark chapter 14. All of the disciples have run away, have abandoned their Lord, except for one. Jesus has just been arrested on the Mount of Olives. And then one of the soldiers reaches out to grab hold of a quote-unquote young man. And the young man ostensibly dodges, but the soldier catches his robe and holds on to it. And the young man runs and leaves his robe behind. And he runs away, the text says explicitly, naked. He runs away naked which is scriptural language for saying that he runs away in a state of shame. The same nakedness that Jesus carries on himself on the cross, as you may remember. Same nakedness that Adam and Eve find themselves in when they have eaten the forbidden fruit, when they have rebelled against God. Yes, this young man who tried to be so strong fails his Lord at his Lord's hour of greatest need. And he finds himself in a state of shame. He finds himself stripped bare. 
He finds himself vulnerable. He finds himself naked. But here now something happens because before the three women get there on that Easter morning, apparently a young man ran to the tomb even before they did to go and be at the tomb of Jesus. And he encountered the risen Jesus. And what did the risen Jesus do to this young man? Well, we might say that he baptized him. We might say that, as the text does, Jesus covered him with his grace. He did what he could to take his shame away. And beloved, it is a bigger problem for us. You know, shame is an unbelievably huge problem. Shame will animate us to do things that we have no knowledge of, that we are frequently unconscious of. We feel like we don't make the grade. We feel like we suck. We feel like we're failures. We feel like if people really got to know us, they wouldn't like us at all. We live in fear of others' approval. But you know what the bigger problem is? The bigger problem that Easter presents to us is this. Will you trust Jesus with your shame? Will you become vulnerable enough to reveal to him that thing that you don't want others to know about? Or that thing that you even have a hard thing admitting to yourself? And trust him to cover your shame. You may remember the story of Noah, been on a boat for a very, very long time, probably a whole year, far worse than COVID-19 pandemic, I'll tell you that, with stinky animals, high seas, probably sick the majority of the time. I completely understand Noah. I understand why he would want to plant a vineyard, and I would understand why he'd want to drink that whole vineyard with one gulp, which essentially he does, and he gets drunk as a skunk, and he lies in his tent naked in a state of shame. But you know what two of his sons do? Two of his sons walk in backwards to where Noah is lying passed out drunk on his bed. They walk in backwards because they don't want to look at his shame with a blanket held between them and they cover over their father's shame. It's a prefigurement of what Jesus Christ our Lord wants to do to us to each one of us, because at the end of the day, all of us lie down like naked, like naked, like Noah, naked in our tent. It's a story in Luke chapter 15, which Jesus tells about a son who runs away from his father. He doesn't run away. Actually, he, he basically tells his father, dad, I wish you're dead so I could have my inheritance. And his father says, fine, you want the inheritance? Take it. Take it now. Son goes away and he lives a wild life and, on women and drink and who knows what else. And after he runs out of money, he figures, you know what? Here I'm eating pig slop. I'll go back to my father. And the text isn't very clear that he's actually even super repentant about it. But he figures I could have a better life with my father over there. And so as he's practicing and rehearsing what he's going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. He doesn't even get the words out of his mouth. And his father sees him in the distance. And he begins running out toward him, which a Middle Eastern father would never have done, though this one does because he's a picture of the almighty God. And he runs to his son and he wraps his arms around him. And then he, note well, takes off his robe and puts it over his son. He covers over his shame. It is, again, a picture of what God is doing in and through Jesus Christ in the resurrection, in the cross and resurrection, which are actually a piece. He wants to take away our shame. He wants us to trust him with our shame. 
He wants us to be willing to be vulnerable enough with him to come forward with it, whatever it might be. Are you willing to come forward? Do you trust him? This morning, I took my last look at Twitter. <laughs> I'm going to take a Sabbath from Twitter for the next several months. Some of you know I'm headed on sabbatical for about three and a half months here. And I'm going to take a Sabbath from it, but I just looked one last time and I'm actually really glad that I did because there was such a beautiful little story about a Sunday school teacher, I think it was, with one of their kids in Sunday school. And the Sunday school, as they were coming around to this Easter time, said, you know, children, I wonder what, what do you think Jesus was doing those three days when he was in hell? Before he rose up from the dead, what do you think Jesus was doing when he was hell? And after a long pause, one of the students said, Teacher, I think I know. And the teacher said, Yes, what is it? He said, I think that Jesus was looking everywhere for his friend Judas. Sometimes we want to put a limit on God's love. <laughs> We want to say, what I have done is too much for you, my God. Surely you cannot cover this one. Surely you will not turn your eyes away from this one. I've been running away from you for so long, I wanted nothing to do with you. And our natural reaction then is to go into the corner and hide. We put a limit on God's love. The powerful thing about what this child said is that it speaks the truth of Scripture, deep, deep truth. We cannot put a limit on God's desire to forgive us for our sin. We cannot put a limit on God's desire to cover us because he wants to, because he wants to make us his own and invite us into the romance of all romances, which is to know him and be known by him and to be on the trajectory toward the new heavens and the new earth and all of its fullness where he will be all in all. This is our destiny. Remember it. And let it become your greatest reality again today. May God do this for each one of us by his spirit. For we cannot come to this knowledge on our own. It is a gift of God. And yet he says to us, come. Come. Believe. Trust. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we pray that you would indeed ignite our hearts with faith. With hope. With a sense of your deep and abiding love. Lord baptize us again into the waters that maybe we have already been baptized into, um, which is to say into the knowledge, Lord, of what has happened to us or what can happen to us because of the work of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we give you all glory, honor, and praise. If we had to make up a God, we would never have thought this up. This is far too wonderful not to be true. Remind us of this. Convince us of it. Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. As we sing now, burn the truth into our hearts. Emboss it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.